Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church, now with readers in 193 countries. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Listen to Him, The Transfiguration of Jesus, and is based upon the lectionary scriptures for Sunday, February 26, 2006. In the Gospel this week, we read about the transfiguration of Jesus, a story so central to the Gospel that all three synoptic writers include it, Matthew chapter 17, Mark chapter 9, and Luke chapter 9. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Some readers will dismiss this story out of hand as bizarre fiction. Others will purge it of perceived offensive elements while trying to retain some kernel of truth. For example, by interpreting the incident as an embellished tale or as a truth communicated by myth or metaphor. Or finally, as some scholars believe, as a misplaced and reinterpreted account of the resurrection. But I appreciate the sage advice of Harvey Cox of Harvard, who cautioned against the sweep, who cautioned against encountering the sweeping vision of Christian eschatology only to whittle it down to something manageable and lackluster. Years later, when Peter remembered this terrifying experience, he did so precisely to counter ridicule that the early believers followed cleverly invented stories, as opposed to what he called eyewitness accounts of literal events, 2 Peter 1, 16-18. The details of the story, exactly six days after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the identification of what is probably Mount Hermon in present-day Syria, which reaches to 9,000 feet, the secluded and private nature of the incident, the palpable terror they experienced, Peter's impulsive outburst, and their confusion about something so essential as the resurrection from the dead. All these suggest that Mark intended his readers to understand that he was writing history and not myth or metaphor, even if the story, like so many stories in the Gospels, is easier to describe than it is to explain.
Even if the nature of the transfiguration is not obvious, Mark seems to report a genuine experience. Sometimes even the recipient of such an experience is hard-pressed to describe exactly what happened. Luke, for example, records how in his miraculous escape from prison, Peter, quote, had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision, end quote. Acts chapter 12, verse 9. Whether Peter, James, and John had an ecstatic vision, or whether Jesus was literally, if briefly, metamorphosized before their eyes, which in my mind is more likely, the natural, physical phenomenon of brilliant light is secondary to the supernatural, metaphysical affirmation of the voice from the cloud. This Jesus whom the disciples followed was not just an itinerant rabbi, clever sage, socio-political provocateur, subversive wisdom teacher, ascetic, or failed apocalyptic troublemaker. The Transfiguration portrays him as the cosmic lord of all human history and God's beloved and specifically appointed son. Having thus experienced a fleeting glimpse and a foretaste of the full and final consummation of all things, the conclusion of the voice from the cloud is inevitable. Listen to him. Three marvels accompany the transfiguration. First, Jesus' clothes shone like blinding light. Matthew's version likens Jesus' radiance to the brilliance of the sun. Matthew 17, verse 2. Both descriptions evoke comparisons to Moses on Mount Sinai when Yahweh appeared in a cloud and with consuming fire in Exodus chapter 24. Paul described his famous conversion on the road to Damascus as an encounter with blinding light accompanied by a voice from heaven. Acts chapter 22, verse 6 and chapter 26, 13 which testimony lends an experiential aspect to Paul's declaration that, quote, God dwells in unapproachable light, end quote. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. In his transcendent glory, Jesus fulfills the law that Moses received and consummates the end of all things that Elijah was thought to harbinger. Third, the voice of God the Father from a cloud similar to that at his baptism in Mark chapter 1 verse 11, affirms what only a few pages earlier Peter had confessed, that Jesus is God's beloved and specially appointed son who merits our total allegiance. Listen to him. Nothing is easier for Christians who have become over-familiar with the gospel texts and traditions than to domesticate and diminish them. Taming the ineffable, trivializing the indescribable, cutting and trimming to neuter God so as to manage him. In their social scientific survey of over 3,000 teenagers and parents in 267 personal interviews conducted across four years, Christian Smith, distinguished professor of sociology at UNC Chapel Hill, and his colleague Melinda Denton, conclude that adults have effectively communicated to children what they call a, quote, moral therapeutic 
deism, end quote. In other words, be nice, don't do mad, for a remote deity wants you to be happy and feel good about yourself. In other words, says Smith, quote, we have come with some confidence to believe that a significant part of Christianity in the U.S. is actually only tenuously Christian in any sense that is seriously connected to the actual historical Christian tradition. You can see their groundbreaking study in the book Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, Oxford University Press, 2005. The transfiguration of Jesus belies the countless ways we dilute the strong wine of the gospel. The blinding light and voices from the clouds challenge faith that is turned tepid, perfunctory, and even boring. In Annie Dillard's work, Teaching a Stone to Talk, the writer and poet thus asks, does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may awake some day and take offense, or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. I can understand how some people will read the Transfiguration story and, as Dillard admits, quote, not believe a word of it, end quote. But may God save us from the safe middle ground of self-serving, domesticating deism. And now for further reflection. How do we, in Harvey Cox's words, whittle down accounts like the Transfiguration? And why do you think we do that? Second, consider the many ways we trivialize the gospel and domesticate God. Third, based upon your own experience, what do you make of the conclusions of Smith and Denton about what they call moral therapeutic deism. Fourth, why do you think Jesus gave Peter, James, and John orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until he had risen from the dead? And finally, for further study, see the wonderful book by Donald McCullough, The Trivialization of God, The Dangerous Illusion of a Manageable Deity. 1995. For my book review this week, I review a book by Frank Anthony Spina, the title of which is The Faith of the Outsider, Exclusion and Inclusion in the Biblical Story, Grand Rapids, Erdman's 2005, 206 pages. For my mother's funeral, one of my five siblings chose not to attend the services. After his divorce, my brother married an African-American woman and fretted whether our little church in small-town North Carolina would welcome them. 
I don't know if he was wise and perceptive in this regard, or whether he projected his insecurity onto others, but the threat of exclusion and marginalization as an outsider is a potent toxin for most all of us. No one wants to be an outsider. In his new book, The Faith of the Outsider, the Old Testament scholar Frank Spina makes a close reading of the insider-outsider motif in the Bible. He begins with the unpopular reminder that it's impossible to ignore the presence of what scholars call the scandal of particularity throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, Israel alone is God's elect people. In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, for example, we read, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Israel is not only God's special insider community, as Spina notes, it's the only insider community. All other nations need not apply. Similarly, in the New Testament, the early Christians proclaimed that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, John 14, 6. So if you excise this insider theme from the biblical narrative, you would end up with a slender Bible indeed. But that's only part of the story, and one that is significantly enriched by other elements of the plot. When God elected a single community Israel, his intentions were categorically universal in scope, that in Abraham all peoples on earth would be blessed, Genesis 12:3. Those same early Christians who proclaimed Jesus as the only way also imagine heaven populated with a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Revelation 7, verse 9. When we read the Bible carefully then, we notice how often it features prominent outsiders. This inclusion of outsider stories, Spina argues, is neither incidental nor haphazard in the biblical witness. These outsider stories often include a significant plot reversal in which the ostensible insider is cast in negative light and the outsider is portrayed as superior in virtue or in faith. And in his book, Spina considers seven of these stories where the outsider is mainlined and the insider is marginalized. Esau, Tamar, the story of incest, Rahab, a harlot, Naaman, Jonah, Ruth, a resident alien who remarries a Hebrew, and the woman at the well in John 4, who had married five times. Spina's book might remind you of Miroslav Wolf's book entitled Exclusion and Embrace. While Wolf is a theologian, Spina is a biblical scholar, and the goal of the so-called close reading that he undertakes is to read these stories as standalone objects with their own content, rather than a, as a subjective social construction. We must attempt to understand them, in other words, in and of themselves, without recourse to outside sources, especially the trendy, chic, and politically correct sources of the post-structuralist. I love this book about such an important biblical motif, 
I only wish that Spina had given us a final chapter that reviews and summarizes the themes in a comprehensive fashion, suggesting some contemporary implications and applications. Frank Anthony Spina, The Faith of the Outsider, Exclusion and Inclusion in the Biblical Story. For film this week, I review a marvelous film entitled Schulze Gets the Blues from the year 2003, in German with English subtitles. This film begins in a mine shaft in Saxon, Germany, and ends up in the honky-tonk bars on the Louisiana Bayou. How the protagonist, Schulze, got from one place to the other, barely speaking any lines at all in almost two hours, and just what his journey symbolizes beyond mere geography constitute the plot of this film. Schulze and two of his buddies retire from the local salt mine, but after puttering in the garden and pestering their families, life as pensioners settles into the predictable monotony that we might expect in an insular subculture characterized by traditional polka music. Later, he even stops forlornly in front of the mine on his bicycle. One kid sneers at the three old codgers, I'll never be like that. The bachelor Schulze lives alone, but we learn from family photos that his father was a noted accordion player. Schulze is too, and one night on his little radio, he hears some Zydeco music, an accordion-based genre from Louisiana. He turns off the radio after a minute, then turns it back on, then pulls out his battered accordion and reproduces the tune. He can no longer sleep but stares at the ceiling because he can't get the music out of his head. He's hooked. This new musical passion gives Schulze a new lease on life, but dare he play such newfangled music in the land of polka? His friends urge him on despite petty detractors and even send him to their sister city in Texas for their annual German musical festival. There, Schulze experiences a new joy in life, a new style of music, a new geography, and new friends, all without knowing any English. Some people found this film plotting, but I loved its minimalist, slow-moving style through which we watched the endearing Schulze discover himself. The DVD case advertises that Schulze Gets the Blues has won awards at 10 international film festivals, a remarkable feat considering that it's the first film by writer-director Michael Shore. Schulze Gets the Blues from the year 2003 in German with English subtitles. And finally, for poetry this week, I have a short portion from a poem by James Russell Lowell, who lived from 1819 to 1891. The poem's entitled, The Present Crisis. Careless seems the great avenger, history's pages but record, one death grapple in the darkness twixt old systems and the word. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, 
keeping watch above his own. The Present Crisis by James Russell Lowell. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 26, 2006. And please join us every Monday for a new essay on the biblical lectionary, a book note, a film review, and a poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.